0: Welcome to Jepper Bites, the JLF Podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdata. This episode is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Houston 2020. How innovation works. Matt Ridley in conversation with Shruti Rajagopalan. There is Hello to everyone in Houston, uh, where we can't be present physically. But thanks to technology and innovation, as Matt would agree, uh, we're there uh, virtually to share our ideas. Uh, welcome, Matt. This is—it's such a joy to speak with you. I, as you know, I've always been a big fan of your books, and I—and I, and I want to get to it. Uh, right away. Uh, so you've sort of, in one sense, in how innovation works, you've removed the romance and magic and mysticism from innovation, right? Uh, you've demolished this great man thesis. Uh, you've completely separated you know, uh, this uh, obsession with inventors as geniuses, with these eureka moments. And instead, you systematically show, in case after case, that the best thing for innovation is actually trial and error right perspiration not inspiration so uh, <laughs> you're laughing but but that's sort of you know the one part of the book on the other hand it's not all bad news right you bring back the magic and romance somewhere completely different and i think somewhere much more important and this is your case for a free society right where uh, you know in a world where there's permissionless exchange and permissionless innovation that has the power to you know unleash the creative and entrepreneurial juices of very ordinary people who become innovators. They don't need to be geniuses, right? As long as they function in a broader ecosystem that makes trial and error possible. So is this a good summation of the sort of like the good news and the bad news uh, in the book?
1: Shruti, that's an absolutely brilliant summary of, of my argument. Um, But uh, I think I would argue that that both sides of that equation are actually good. So um, yes, you're right that I do try and take the theory of the heroic inventor down a peg. Uh, I try and uh, draw back the curtain and show that whenever somebody became incredibly famous for inventing something, uh, he or she was building on the achievements of many other people, was collaborating with other people and wasn't really showing some special juice inside their bodies that other people didn't have. We'll call it genius, call it creativity, whatever you want to call it. It was just hard work, common sense, open mindedness uh, and pre- being prepared to fail and try again. Things like that. So in that sense, I want to democratize the pr- the, the, the story of innovation i want to make it clear that anyone can do it and lots of ordinary people do do it Um, uh, but at the same time the way i tell the stories in the book is by telling stories about people Um, i do very much single out individuals and tell their tales uh, in a way to sort of get this point across so i hope it's just as entertaining uh, as as, uh, uh, even though i'm i'm also saying that they don't deserve quite the same credit probably the, the perfect example of the point you just made is that a very grand man called Samuel Langley got a very big grant from the US government to build an airplane and he was very well connected and he had a lot of money and he did the whole thing in secret because he knew that he was cleverer than everybody else uh, and it was a total flop and the airplane crashed into into the Potomac River within 20 yards 10 days later on an island off north carolina two humble bicycle mechanics from dayton ohio called orville and wilbur wright uh, achieved uh, the powered flight with no connections no money no government support anything and they did it by collaborating connecting networking picking the brains of other people doing a ton of experiments with gliders and kites and things like that so um, I think there's just as much romance in a, in a um, more democratic version of innovation than the great man theory.
0: Absolutely. And in one sense, there, there are more people to credit, right? Uh, so, so where we take away the romance from the genius invest, inventor, now you have a lot more people that one needs to thank. It's almost like a reading of eye pencil or something like that, right? Like yes. who invented the light bulb or who invented uh, you know the airplane? And the answer to that suddenly is not so simple. And there is something a little bit special about that too, which is the magic of social cooperation, right? So, so yes, exactly. the extent of the of the order, right? Of the exchange and the spontaneous order that needs to take place both across the world and across time uh, to make this possible at the right moment. That that does have something a little bit special and maybe that's the magic that that you know that's brought to the table through innovation.
1: Yes, and, and there's there's one feature of it that I, I'm still puzzling over. I can't quite get my head around how it works. And that is that innovation is amazingly obvious and predictable when you look backwards. So as you say, 21 different people came up with the idea of the light bulb around the same time. There was Swan here in England and Edison in America and Lodigan in Russia and so on. Um, and. That looks weird, but it's true of almost every device you can think of, and many scientific discoveries too, that you get this simultaneous invention. You get more than one person having the same idea at the same time. Um, uh, uh, And yet, looking forwards, we can't tell when an innovation is going to happen. So to make that very clear, think about the search engine. Um, I think the search engine is probably the most useful innovation of my lifetime, I use it pretty well every day. I can't remember what life was like without it. How on earth did we ever find anything out without search engines? Um, uh, But I'm old enough to remember that that there was a a time before search engines. And once the internet became uh, functional and widespread, it was inevitable and obvious that people would invent search engines. You don't need Larry Page to bump into Sergey Brin at Stanford University to invent Google, to have search engines. There were lots of other rival things, Yahoo and others around already at that time. And one of them would have scooped the pool in the way that Google scooped the pool. Um, So in that sense, the invention of the search engine was wholly obvious and inevitable. But can you find people in the 1980s predicting it? No, you can't. Every now and then you can find a slightly prescient remark, but it's it's pretty vague, and uh, certainly no one spotting that this is going to be the way to make money out of the internet, which it turned out to be. Um, uh, and so, you know, what's going on here? Why, why is it so um, asymmetric? That 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 the the knowledge that comes together to produce an innovation um, just can't be foreseen and yet in in retrospect it looks fantastically obvious that's something that fascinates me uh, about innovation and maybe you've got some ideas about how I can solve that conundrum
0: I, I doubt I'm going to come up with anything better than you. But you know, there's one thing you do say in the book, and I'm not you know, quoting this perfectly from memory. You basically say no one can tell you exactly when and how progress will happen, right? Uh, no one can predict that. If someone does and their prediction turns out to be right, they probably just got lucky, right? It cannot be guessed. It cannot be orchestrated. It cannot be manipulated. But we do know. The circumstances, the broad set of circumstances in which it happens, right? Yeah. And one uh, possible um, answer that I have to the question you just posed me is maybe uh, this has its roots somewhere in Paul Romer's endogenous growth theory, which yes. you talk about a little bit in the book, which is this idea that there are these, you know, knowledge is both endogenous to go- growth and Emerges like in, in greater amounts. There's an increasing rate of return of knowledge produced from that growth, right? Which is why some of this happens in uh big city environments and things like that. And yes. I think uh the, the endogeneity of growth and knowledge, you know, that tight link may have something to do with why these things suddenly prop up in clusters, right? There are a lot yes. of people who are kind of in a similar environment who may spot similar opportunities or who are having interesting similar conversations at a particular point in time. And it could have been Newcastle, you know, two, 300 years ago yes. and, and today it's Silicon Valley and tomorrow it would be somewhere in China, right? Uh, but it's happening at the same time. And I think that may have something to do with why it is so hard to predict, why it's so easy to see in hindsight and also why it possibly pops up in clusters.
1: Yes, I th- I, th- I think you're... you're absolutely right about that and um uh one of the features of innovation that i find fascinating is that it isn't universally spread around the world at any one time there are these extraordinary bushfires of of innovation that that happen in you know the ganges valley a long time ago and then um uh um the, the greek city states and then in uh, arabia and then in china and then in Uh, the low countries and then in England and then in California and now in China and where next Um, of course Where are we going to have it next at the end of the book? I actually say that I don't quite say my money's on India, but I do say that It's the the next place is there to be grasped Uh, I don't think the Chinese regime will be able to hang on to an innovation uh, ecosystem for very long, because whereas the reason it's been in China recently is because there was a certain amount of economic freedom in China, um, not much political freedom, but a certain amount of economic freedom. If you wanted to start a business, it was very easy. Um, uh, and that's changing. Uh, and yeah. so I think it's, you know, there's a vacancy. Uh, I don't think Europe is very good at innovation. Uh, I don't think America's as good as it was. Uh, somebody needs to. Uh, step forward and say right we're going to we're going to be the um, you know the renaissance italy of the next uh, few decades and we're better than india an english-speaking country with a fantastic education system and a a growing economy uh, and a tradition of democracy and openness Um, i hope you know uh, and and by the way while we're on that topic uh, one of the innovations i write about in the book and it's not a physical innovation it's a mental innovation is the the concept of zero as a number Um, and with it the decimal system of counting which is an incredibly important feature and of course Europe got it from Italy and the Italians got it through Fibonacci from North Africa and the North Africans got it from Arabia from Al-Khwarizmi and it turns out the the, uh, Arabians got it from India Uh, So the trail of that really important innovation goes back to India um, and uh, uh, transformed the world dramatically.
0: You know, I was, I meant to ask you a little bit later about India. I'm glad you brought it up. And and you mentioned before about the kinds of spontaneous orders that you have witnessed, you know, in India, how, you know, it's fundamentally a democratic country, it's English speaking, so on. Now, I'm a little bit more pessimistic about India uh, relative to you, and I'll tell you why. Because within the system that you describe, permissionless exchange and permissionless innovation, you know, that's the ability to buy, sell, exchange, to set up a new business, to come up with a new idea without a government or a bureaucrat or a regulator telling you if this is okay or not okay. Uh, that seems to be key to the innovation process, right? I mean, if those, those are not there perfectly, if there are bad regulators, it certainly slows innovation down uh, the way you described in the European Union. The problem is in India, the whole license permit Raj system, uh, it didn't go away entirely, right? Some of it went away in in early 90s when India partially liberalized, but it's completely alive and well. The second part where I'm a little less optimistic about India relative to you is um, the lack of federalism right you have a big discussion in the book about how oh, yes. very large centralized structures are bound to fail right and governments and very large companies are a big example of that and startups small cities you know city states those which are just smaller and maybe competing with one another are much more likely to come up with good ideas, because there is a competition among these these units. And for these two reasons, I'm a little bit nervous. And I think the lesson for India is both, you know, becoming more federal and and eliminating this kind of license permit. Raj, Uh, what do you think? um, those yeah I, I think you're
1: dead right about both of those things I, I don't know india very well but i think the license raj is is clearly a problem and um uh, you could probably blame the brits for it in some sense but maybe that's long enough ago so that it's not all our fault um uh, uh, and it's certainly not my fault um and uh but in terms of the federal point i think this is a really important and underappreciated thing because we often say look big free trade area is ideal for innovation. You know, the more you have free trade, then off you go. It's fine. But it's also very important that you allow experimentation, that you allow different rules in different places. That was the the reason Europe had its great breakthroughs uh, in between 1500 and 1900, was because it was very hard to unify. You You know, ask Hitler, Napoleon, Charles V and others, you can't turn it into an empire for very long. Um, it it breaks up because of the way the mountain ranges and the peninsulas and the offshore islands are organized. It's actually a very hard continent to to turn into one country. And that meant that innovators moved from one place to another. You know, the, 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 the pioneer of printing, Gutenberg, Uh, moved from Mainz to uh, Strasbourg and so on. You know, there's lots of examples of this, of of looking around for a congenial regime in which to work. Uh, You get competition between governance entities. And something similar, I think, happened in China in its golden age, the Song Dynasty of about a thousand years ago. Tremendously inventive period, gunpowder, compasses, printed paper, sorry, printed money, um, printing generally, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, And that was... that. That dynasty was was very untypical of Chinese empires in that it was it was devolved it was democ- it was uh, uh, um, localized that that on the whole merchants were in charge in their own cities, and after a Mongol interregnum, it's followed by the Ming Empire, which takes completely the opposite approach of tremendous centralization. That that, that basically the mandarins uh, in the capital tell the merchants. Uh, what they can and can't do, whether they can trade, whether they can move, whether they, uh, how much they must keep in their storehouses and so on. And that kills uh, the Chinese economy pretty well stone dead in a, in a century or two. Um, and, you know, I could draw other lessons from other empires. The Ottoman Empire, very anti-innovative, very centralised. Um, and I'm afraid the European Union, because the way the European Union is organised It's all about harmonization. It's all about saying the rules are going to be exactly the same everywhere. Um, And uh, that, in the end, makes it hard to innovate because it doesn't allow for, for local experimentation. The alternative way of organizing the European Union is to say, look, it's a free trade area, but there's mutual recognition. In other words, if the rules deciding whether a product is safe in France, are different from the rules to decide whether the same product is safe in England, it doesn't matter as long as we recognise that if it's good enough for the French, it's good enough for us, so there's no tariffs and trade barriers between us. And I feel that's the the the, the original sin of the European Union, is failing to go down that path and instead going down the harmonisation route. And that's why Europe has been unable to spawn much of significance in the uh in the way of digital giants to rival amazon and apple and google and so on Uh, and indeed their chinese equivalent alibaba and so on Um, so uh you're you're dead right that india should be more federal it is quite federal but it should be more so because you know america of course is the exception that proves the rule here america looks like a a a great big empire but it isn't it's a uh, or it has been until relatively recently um, a, a very um, uh, localized and devolved situation with big differences between the states.
0: I completely agree with you on on the European Union. I mean, not only has it failed to encourage innovation, it's actually two steps worse. Right? Even innovations that take place outside the European Union, they take about two or three or five years to recognize that the innovation even took place and allow it you know, per their safety standards or per their very monolithic you know, uniform set of standards that they impose on the entire union. I want to switch gears a little bit uh, to vaccines. You know, this is a a big important chapter in your book. It comes right after energy, which seems to be a very nice way to also sort, you know, in the order of importance what's happening in the world. And you, of course, wrote this before the pandemic. Uh, So it has nothing uh, about the COVID vaccine. But I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about that. So it's very clear from your book that your argument is this kind of, you know, centralized creationist um, mindset towards innovation really doesn't work very well, mm-hmm. right? It needs to come bottom up. And that's exactly what we've seen during the pandemic, right, different ph- pharmaceutical companies, different labs across the world are collaborating, you know, the manufacturers are somewhere in India, the labs are in Oxford or they're they're up here in Cambridge, right? So. So, so you see that already happening having said that there still seems to be a very important role for the state right in in the scheme of things right uh, which you know at one level is things like making sure there is fda approval or you know european union approval for whatever vaccine comes through uh, but also creating an environment where these kinds of investments are possible so what is your view on the vaccine that's come, that we've come up with, now we know there are at least two working vaccines uh, for the COVID pandemic. Do you think we got there really fast? We could have gotten there faster? Do you think it was inevitable? Uh, you know, What is going on with the COVID vaccine?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, and my starting point is to say the vaccines remind us of the importance of innovation, because frankly, we entered this pandemic with a disgracefully slow and old fashioned platform for developing vaccines and i'm not just saying that with hindsight people were saying that uh, before the pandemic were saying look we've got to do something about the fact that we haven't speeded up the way we develop vaccines and we haven't got a high success rate and the pharmaceutical industry is not interested because they're very hard to make money out of Um, uh, and sure enough the gates foundation and the Wellcome trust and a couple of governments including the indian government and the uh, Norwegian government got together some years ago and said look we need a coalition for ep- epidemic preparedness innovation as it's called. Uh, we need to, be, to to develop vaccine platforms that are are ready to go when a, when a pan- pandemic starts. Uh, it's a great idea it's the right way to go it started too late. It started in 2017 it should have started if it had started 10 years earlier I think we'd be in a very different, different position. And I tell the story in the book of the development of the whooping cough vaccine in the 1930s by two rather amazing women in the American Midwest in their spare time. Uh, And that took four years. Now, that would be good going today, nearly 100 years later. That's extraordinary. Think of other fields where there's been so little progress. So it's something of a disgrace, as I say, that we haven't been able to, to, to come up with better vaccine development platforms. I suspect this pandemic will solve that and sort that and we will now uh, put more emphasis on this issue uh, uh, and hopefully we will learn, as you hinted at in your question, from the fact that we had to start a lot of horses in this race um, to find which one is the winner. Um, We didn't know until a few weeks ago whether uh, inactivated vaccines, attenuated vaccines, Uh, genetically modified vaccines m messenger RNA vaccines a new idea um, would work it turns out that the two winners so far who seem to to have got phase three results before anybody else in less than a year which is fairly spectacular progress by previous standards are the messenger RNA vaccines Um, that's the Pfizer one and the Moderna one they are both um Uh, BioNTech and and Moderna I should say and they are both um, using this idea of simply putting the messenger RNA for one of the proteins um, uh, in a a capsule of some kind and injecting it into the body uh, for one of the virus proteins and your body will then make the protein and have an immune reaction to it and set up uh, an immune response. Um, It's a very nice simplified version of the, the process of vaccination. Uh, and it, um, uh, you know, but, it, but we didn't know whether it would work or not. Uh, it's looking like it will, and I suspect that will transform vaccine production uh, from now on. Um, yes, obviously you need government involvement in this because government is one of the biggest purchasers of healthcare. But notice that you know the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust have been crucial in this too. That philanthropic involvement can be very important. Um, and the Gates Foundation did something very smart with respect to vaccines recently in another case. Um, uh, pneumococcus is a disease that kills poor children in poorer parts of the world in large numbers. Uh, because it's a disease of the poor and it's not a huge disease, there's, it's just not worth a pharmaceutical industry developing a vaccine against it. Uh, there's no profit in it so the gates foundation went to the pharmaceutical industry and said look we're going to dangle a prize in front of you um if you can develop a a vaccine to pneumococcus we'll give you a a lot of money it's not going to be a lump sum what it's going to be is an advanced market commitment we'll buy these vaccines we'll make sure that you can sell them for a high enough price to make it worth your while and we'll make sure they're available at a lower low enough price so that people can actually use them Uh, and that worked very well Uh, it resulted in three effective vaccines in relatively short space of time so um there are there are push and pull factors that need to be got right to transform a field like this and it's important not to think that you can sort of just solve every problem with money i mean i elsewhere in the book i argue that you know there are certain uh, constraints that you won't be able to overcome you can't we don't seem to be able to improve transport the way we we were doing throughout most of the 20th century um but vaccination is an area where i think we 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 had can do better and should do better and have done better and the other thing i love about vaccines as a story of innovation is that we were using them for hundreds of years before we understood how they worked Um, i tell the story of lady mary wortley montague who brought them back to britain from the from constantinople and also the slave onesimus who brought them to um, boston from a- africa not them but the idea of not vaccination as it then was but inoculation Inoculations. Um, and uh um so it goes back a long way and it was a weird foolish dangerous idea you know you deliberately give an infection to someone in the hope that it'll stave off a future infection that might be worse i mean how much of a quack nonsense idea could that possibly be um uh, so there was huge opposition violent opposition to the pioneers of vaccines uh, and yet they have saved more lives than anything else and the the eradication of smallpox from the face of the planet is i would say up there as one of the Greatest human achievements of all time.
0: Absolutely. No, and there's a lovely story I can share it with you uh, on how the princesses of Mysore actually post for an ad with uh, you know a smallpox inoculation, you know, the the patch on the hand where they actually get inoculated. Because wow. this was a time when there was a global human chain that was forming where you know each infected person could, could inoculate the next person and so on and so forth. This is not the world of cold storage and warehousing and yes. to suggest that this is perfectly safe the princesses actually got inoculated and they posed for paintings and things like that to you know what,
1: spread what date message. would that have been 18th um, century or uh,
0: no i think this was the 19th century
1: yeah right okay oh fantastic yeah. that's yes a really so i'll i'll send
0: you this this lovely story i think the bbc covered it recently I want to shift gears a little bit because I have just a few more minutes to talk about a very interesting part of the book uh, where we, I mean, of course, the fundamental, Mechanism in the book is trial and error, right? So uh, assumed in trial and error is that the e- optimal error rate in in an ecosystem that merits information is not zero. You need some error, right? But on the <laughs> other hand, you also have a fantastic chapter on fakers, right? Uh, and how to detect fakes, right? And this is of course the great story of you know Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes in in our modern time. It's this astonishing story, uh, and so my question to you is it's very clear that the optimal amount of error is not zero. Is the optimal amount of faking zero uh, <laughs> in a world where you want innovation and progress? And and that's only like a part facetious question. I yes. I mean the whole fake it till you make it is, is that exactly. concept uh you know still really important and there are gonna be some bad apples like you know, Elizabeth Holmes, but they're still part of the larger ecosystem and one shouldn't clamp down on them or do you have a slightly different view on outright fraud
1: well it's a really good question and uh, i love the way you put it um and yes i think fake it till you make it is is a really good way of starting on this uh, answer because uh, steve jobs was wont to do something which thomas edison also did which was to stand up and announce a product that he hadn't yet um perfected Um, You know, in a year's time, we're going to produce a device that does this. And some of his executives were horrified, you know, but we we don't know how to make it yet. Um, And uh, this was partly to frighten off his rivals. It was partly to boost the share price, but it was partly to challenge his own team to jolly well solve this problem. And in Steve Jobs case, it was possible and it worked because Moore's law would come to his rescue. Yes. The, the inevitable inexorable incremental improvement in computing over time you know where you get twice as much computing it for a given outlay of money every 18 months um was was likely to bail steve jobs out <laughs> um and that's the, the mistake elizabeth holmes made um she essentially modeled herself on steve jobs and she hoped to be able to say um yeah i don't yet know how to diagnose hundreds of diseases from a tiny drop of blood taken from your finger uh, but we're well on the way to solving that problem well it turned out that the smaller you make a a transistor on a chip uh, not only the uh, cheaper but also the more reliable it is that's extraordinary but it's true Um, it's not the case with a blood test it's the opposite the smaller the sample the harder it is harder it is to get it right so um so that form of faking yes does clearly have a place um what about examples of uh, you know genuine frauds but honest ones who were trying to 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 solve a problem and thought they'd done it like say you know the cold fusion story of of, uh 20 years ago you know where it was thought that you could get immense amounts of energy uh, very cheaply and easily out of matter um and initially their experiments seemed to stand up to um uh scrutiny and uh and then for a number of years thereafter there was a rear guard action of people saying yeah you know there's still something there you know maybe muons are involved or something um uh, i i i think that's fair enough and you know you've got to f- you've got to be allowed to fail um uh in this world steve uh, not steve jobs um jeff bezos is very clear on this he wants his colleagues Swinging and missing, as he puts it. That's a baseball metaphor, which I don't fully understand, but I think I know <laughs> what it <means. laughs> um, uh, uh, So, so yes, let's not throw as we crack down on some appalling frauds. And I tell the story of the, the fake bomb detectors, which had nothing inside them, um, but took in a lot of people in the aftermath of the Iraq War, and probably led to a lot of deaths. Um, while we rightly coruscate such people, we mustn't lose sight of the need for a little bit of um, dodgy practice, yeah. just to sort of discover what's out there.
0: Absolutely. And I think the the Jeff Bezos and Elizabeth Holmes is a great uh, contrast, because Jeff Bezos got so much flack in the late 1990s, early 2000s for failing on a much smaller scale, but the good thing was we knew he was failing because he was transparent, right? And there was a lot of experimentation and trial and error. Uh, the, the trouble, on the other hand, with Holmes was there was a lot of secrecy. Uh, you couldn't see the failures, and that's why when you finally detect the failure, it's massive. So if culturally, as a society, we're a little bit more forgiving of error and failure, then we might get more of it, but on a smaller scale versus you know otherwise.
1: I think you're dead right. Transparency is, 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 is what is what makes it acceptable
0: yeah and now we have to open up uh you know to questions from the wonderful people who are attending the houston houston festival and uh, i already have the first question uh anna asks how does one look at the platform of innovation and growth in the Indo-Pacific region, keeping in mind the astronomical growth and power of China, right? How does this present a point of friction between countries uh, in the region and sort of China's attempt to overwhelm and get a stronghold of the region?
1: Mm. Well, um, I'm no geopolitical expert, um, but I think it's not difficult to read that uh, China increasingly wants to use its economic strength. Uh, in political terms uh, in the region. And it is uh, a huge issue for politicians in that region and also elsewhere in the world, in America and in in Europe. Um, uh, Until a few years ago, I would have been quite starry-eyed and optimistic about this, that, look, the Chinese are innovating, they're integrating, they're trading. What's the problem? Uh, If they make stuff that we want to buy Good for them. If we make stuff they want to buy, good for us. Everybody's um, benefiting. Um, but it feels like that uh, relationship, which was between the rest of the world and China, which was going in a good direction, no longer is. Uh, and the degree of secrecy and top down control and political uh, um, direction of what's happening in China is a real threat to this this relationship between the rest of the world and China. Um, uh, You know, we mustn't get into the mindset where we say we have to confront China and then they feel threatened and they confront us back and suddenly we're in the 1930s again um, with China instead of Japan, if you like. Uh, but, But somewhere short of that, there is a sensible way for other countries to boost their own innovative economies through having greater freedom if china really does crack down on its innovators and its entrepreneurs to the extent that the xi regime appears to be doing it they won't produce the goods they'll yeah. stop innovating and that's a fantastic opportunity for other countries you know as i said for india but also for indonesia and australia and japan and and other places to say right well we'll pick up the pieces we'll we'll invent the next um, uh type of biotechnology or computing or whatever it might be um uh and then uh china will have to get it from us um yeah. and that would be uh that, that would make them a little more of a supplicant and a little less of a uh, whatever the opposite opposite of a supplicant is
0: two questions specific to china you know one in the book, you talk about you know the same thing that you mentioned that you know post the Deng Xiaoping reforms, there's this bottom up, bottom up innovation. China is a lot more decentralized. You know, in fact, when you go there, then it seems on the outside. Of course, there is this top down, centralist, you know, communist party regime. Do you think that there is you know some kind of scale issue here in the beginning? You know, as long as there is you know decentralized local competition. Things are fine, but as the emergent order becomes larger and larger and it scales up, then the top-level political institutions and political freedom just start becoming really important. Or do you think China has just you know got caught up in this particular moment when it's finally come to its reckoning of you know increasing transparency and reducing political constraints?
1: I think the history of China shows that that it it succumbs to an over-centralized regime far too often that this happened under Mao, it happened under the Ming, it happened under various previous, it happened under the Mongols, you know, that that there's something about the geography, uh, the economic and physical geography of China that lends itself to to centralised control. Um, But I don't think it's inevitable. I think I mentioned the Song Dynasty, uh, the Tang Dynasty, likewise, you know, this is an area, uh, a part of the world that that is capable of of being uh, a much more, um, open and decentralized society as well. so I don't I don't see it as a, as, a, as a consequence of growth in size. Where I do think growth in size leads to uh, less innovative thinking is in corporations. Uh, I mean, I think it's the, the, the number of cases where companies, once they get big, stop being innovative and yeah. really struggle to, to be innovative again. Um, you know Kodak is blown away by the next form of photography but an even more instructive example is Nokia Nokia, yeah. you know which is a um, the dominant firm in the mobile phone market globally yeah. and you know there are headlines like who can stop Nokia yeah. um, uh, and uh, it's an extraordinary success story but by then it's so big that it starts to take a very long time to take decisions it starts to get too invested in its own products and it doesn't like disrupting its own business model so for example it doesn't embrace data it sticks with voice uh, and so on Um, and eventually nokia fades from sight and shrinks dramatically so um, uh, yes there is a problem with bigness and you know i don't see a problem with smallness either in companies or in countries you know some people say oh well you don't want to just be singapore why not singapore's extremely successful hong kong incredibly successful um you know there are mauritius is a successful economy you know that you do not have to this this weird idea that you have to be a big country to be successful is just disproven again and again um uh, you know think of venice or genoa you know dominating the mediterranean for centuries
0: Absolutely, and we have time for one last uh, question from the audience, and this is Rohan Bajaj who asks: Do you think COVID nineteen pandemic could present us with an innovation moment, like for all of us? Um, I'm curious to hear the answer on this because, you know, on the one hand, you need. You know, cities and people mingling. You know, one of your old themes, which is ideas, yes. having sex, and things like that. <laughs> but on the other hand, we're in this moment of crisis where everyone's trying to come together and find solutions. So, you know, which one of those tendencies will will win? I'm 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 very curious, like Rohan about about this.
1: Yeah, well, uh, like you and Rohan, I don't know the answer. I don't know which way it's going to go, but and I'm worried about one and excited about the other. Clearly, you know, video conferencing has come of age this year. Just to give an example it's nothing to do with medicine um yeah. uh, and it's not because the technology has has advanced dramatically but because there's suddenly a huge demand because of the 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 the, the virus and it, it, it's reached critical mass in a way that email reached critical mass in the early 1990s and you know suddenly we you, you could assume that your friends had email so you asked for their email and so it suddenly became a new way of cor- of corresponding with people uh, likewise i think video conferencing has now uh, achieved that Um, and that's good and as you and there are lots of other things like you know changing the patterns of commuting and and other things that are going to come out of this as well as all the medical stuff i mean i think we're going to transform diagnosis as well as vaccination but like you i worry that we've spent a whole year not bumping into each other in over the water cooler or in the pub um, and having that conversation that could lead to that idea that could lead to that business and it isn't the same, you, know, you and I will know this, on a screen, uh, having a chat and a drink. It, it sort of works for a bit, but it, you can't interrupt each other. You can't sort of brainstorm in the same way. Um, so we do need to get back to the human way of interacting as well.
0: Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for this, Matt. This was such a pleasure. For everyone else, the book is called How Innovation Works. It's just uh, you know such a fantastic look into what it takes to make innovation work not just in terms of individuals or governments or our usual creationist thinking but just thinking about broader themes about the extended order how to create a society where great ideas can flourish time and again even when we don't know what those great ideas may be thank you for listening to Bites, the jlf podcast I'm your host, Laksh This podcast is produced by Launchora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jepper Bytes wherever you're listening to this.